Over the course of the next hour or so, I'm going to invite you to explore the clinical consultation from a somewhat unorthodox perspective. I've called this series of four lectures Medicine and Surgery as Performance. And in my first lecture at the end of October, I started by saying that as a student, as a medical student, I saw medicine as a science. And then as a surgeon, I saw it as a skill. As a GP, I saw it much more as performance. And as a patient, and I've been a patient quite a lot over the last year or so, I saw it as all all three of those, but principally I saw it as performance. And if we look at medicine as performance rather than as scientific knowledge or component skills, what comes into view particularly is the consultation, because to me the consultation is the central act of medicine. It's where two people, at least, but certainly two people, held together in a relationship of care based on trust and integrity, come together to to address together a problem that one of them has come with. So initially I saw the consultation as as a vehicle, as as a means to apply the knowledge and the skills that that I'd I'd learnt as a medical student and I continued to learn as a hospital doctor. And as a student, I think I saw this pretty much as a one-way process. It started with with what was called taking a history. And I think that word taking is is significant because that's what it was. It was about gathering information from somebody in pretty much a one-way process. It was formulaic. It went through steps. You learnt a series of questions to ask. What was the patient coming with, what was the the presenting complaint, what was the history of the presenting complaint, how did it develop, what were significant things in a patient's family history. You go through a a sequence of questions about other parts of the body that might be wrong. It was very much a process of gathering information. And that led on to, to, to physical examination again through a series of steps that you learnt by rote and then applied. And then you might arrange tests, investigations, and then you come up with the diagnosis. And, and the emphasis was, was about gathering information which allowed you to put people into diagnostic categories. It was, it was something that allowed you to classify people according to a view of disease, um, which I think is very much a, a way of looking at the world of medicine from a practitioner's point of view. Disease as opposed to illness, which is much more, I think, how people experience being unwell as a patient. Now, after I'd finished my medical training, my first career was as a trauma surgeon, and I spent a number of years uh, working in uh, southern Africa particularly, dealing with people who'd been stabbed and and shot and sometimes blown up. And that that model of gathering information continued to work quite well there because if somebody came in having been stabbed or shot, it was pretty clear what the problem was and where you needed to, to, to place your attention in order to fix it. The, the problem was usually clearly defined. But in the next phase of my career, I became a general practitioner, a family doctor, and there things were very different because, because as a GP, people would come to you with all kinds of things and you really had no idea what the problem was going to be until the patient started to tell you. So I began to, to think differently, really, about the consultation itself because... Because as a GP, the consultation became the sort of primary means of getting at that 
sense of what was wrong. And soon after I became a GP, I was, I was very much influenced by a book by another GP called Roger Neighbour, published in 1987, called The Inner Consultation. And this was a, it was a textbook about how to consult. It wasn't about details of disease, about asthma or diabetes or high blood pressure. It wasn't about that at all. It was about the consultation itself. And it, at the time, divided the consultation into, into five segments. Neighbour called them connecting, summarising, handing over, safety netting and housekeeping. So connecting was, for him, was about making, establishing a rapport with your patient, very possibly somebody you'd never met. Um, and it involved listening very carefully to what they, what they said, not, not steamrollering them with questions, but listening to their opening gambit. Summarising was about checking that you've understood the issues that they'd come with, that you had a sense of what was going on. And then handing over was, was checking that the, that the patient was then fully back in charge of what was going to happen next. They understood and they were happy with how things were going to develop after that. Safety netting was about making sure that you'd anticipated all the, all the possible or likely outcomes, all the things that might happen, the things that you hoped would happen, but, but maybe putting in place plans for what would happen if, if things got worse or if it didn't get better, um, literally constructing a safety net. And then housekeeping... Um, I think is often overlooked. That was, that was the need to, to make sure that, that your internal state was as good as it could possibly be when you went on to the next patient, that you were in the right frame of mind to carry on for another consultation. So, so this, this wasn't at all about diseases. This was about the process of engaging with somebody to find out what was happening. And, of course, the clinical consultation... When it's successful, it seems, it seems easy and, and effortless, but actually it's highly con, con, constructed and contrived because, after all, it's a, it's a sort of peculiar thing. It's time-limited. It's usually um, 10 minutes, might be a bit longer, but it's, um, it's, it's usually short. There's an expectation that whatever happens will be confidential, um, and it kind of bypasses the normal, the normal conventions for a conversation. You, you, you don't have to spend a lot of time on preliminaries. You haven't got much time, so you cut to the chase with what the problem is. And then there's, there's the need very often for physical examination, often intimate examination. They may, may cause discomfort. People are often anxious. They're in pain. And yet the whole thing needs to take place in a, in a context of, of apparent, apparent ease and what I've been thinking of as, as a sort of performed naturalness. And that consultation, whether it happens in a GP's surgery or um, a hospital outpatient's or a nurse's consulting room or a physiotherapist's consulting room, I think the principles are, 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 are pretty much the same. So in a previous, my previous lecture, I, I looked at what it, what it was to become expert because I think that, that consultation... Expert consultation is an example of, of a high level of expertise. And in that first lecture, I, I pointed out that, that expertise we can think of as developing in a series of stages, the traditional model of starting as an apprentice, then becoming a, a journeyman, then finally becoming a, a master. I broke down into, in some, in, into, into additional stages, starting off with spending time 
with other people, just learning the basics of what you need to do. Then learning to see and learning to do, spending time immersed in the world that you're aspiring to join. But at some stage, you need to make a pivotal shift from the stuff that you're learning, being inside yourself, being all about you, to where it needs to be focused on, which is all about somebody else. And I learned this from some magicians I was working with. They said they spent years and years and years when they were young, practising tricks, practising how to make coins appear and vanish cards, doing things in front of their mirror. And, and very often by the time they'd done that for a few years, they were um, in their late teens, something, they started to do tricks for other people. And to begin with, they wanted to show off all the things that they'd learnt. But, but sooner or later, they had to realise that, that, that magic only made sense if there was somebody watching, if there was an audience there. And they had to make this shift from it being about them, to be, from it being about them, the performer, to it being about you, the audience. And it, it struck me that something very similar happens in, in medicine. In my own experience, I spent a lot of time studying and passing exams. And to begin with, I wanted to show off all that knowledge and those skills that I had. But then I realised that, that patients, they really weren't interested in that. All they wanted to know was how I could help them with their problem, not how I could show off to them all the stuff I'd learnt. And, and that process, I think, is a process of improvisation. Now, improvisation is an interesting word. It often has a bad name, particularly, I think, for people in medicine, because it sounds like something you, you sort of put together on the hoof, something you make up when you haven't had time to prepare. You just put some bits together and improvise. But actually, I think improvisation is completely different. I think improvisation is is a key skill and very difficult to master. And I think you only have to look at some of the, the really expert jazz musicians to see what improvisation is really like. And the ones who, who, who do that best of all, they can only do that because they've spent years and years, decades usually, learning technique, learning repertoire, being immersed in their world, but particularly learning to listen and respond to what's going on around them. And I think the consultations, too, are all about improvisation. You can't know in advance what your patient's going to come with. Even if you know what they're going to say is the problem, that may not actually be what's bothering them most. And the essence of a skillful consultation, I think, is improvisation. It's, it's being able to, um, to attend, to listen, to watch, and to respond to what somebody else presents. So I've been very influenced also by a book by Keith Johnston called Impro, which he wrote in 1979. Keith Johnston was a, um, a theatre director. He worked a lot with improvisational theatre. And, and one, of his, one of his maxims was, it's not the offer, it's what you do with it. And I think by, by that what he meant was when he's working with a couple of actors on the stage, one of them says something and the other needs to respond. And Johnston says it's really important to respond with yes and rather than yes but because if you say yes and it allows the conversation the improvisation to carry on and develop new ways but if you say yes but you're clamping things down you're shutting things off and I think in a clinical consultation something very similar happens a patient comes with a problem and as a doctor you need to say yes and and move things on so as I've been exploring this idea of of medicine as performance 
as I've been as I've been sort of putting to one side the factual scientific component of medical practice and bringing into sharper focus the performative aspects. I've been working with a lot of experts outside medicine. And close-up magicians have been especially helpful um, to me in, in understanding the, consul, the consultation and how it works. And although our worlds are very different in many ways, we, we use techniques, it turns out, that are surprisingly similar. We both work with very small audiences, both have to observe closely, try to create an experience that is in some way satisfactory, even enjoyable, particularly when people remember it afterwards. But magicians and clinicians seldom have opportunities to talk to one another because we we tend to work in, in worlds that are pretty separate. So in a minute or two, I'm going to be joined by a very distinguished close-up magician and we're going to spend the rest of this lecture in a conversation. Um, it's going to have elements of improvisation uh, and it's going to draw on the two different kinds of expertise that we've both spent a lot of time in building up. And I'm going to start now by introducing Will Houston. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, rather than telling you about what I do, I think it probably makes more sense to show you. Uh, so if you don't mind, uh, we'll get rid of the necessary preliminaries and roll up the sleeves. And then I'd like to show you something using this. It doesn't look like much, but with just a squeeze, it develops into a solid silver coin. Now, tricks with one coin are all well and good, but perhaps you prefer more coins. Uh, if you do, there's a second to join the first. And I think we should find uh, a third one to complete the set. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is not fair. I have two eyes, he has three coins, the odds are against me. Uh, so let's go backwards. Uh, from three, down to two, and then from two, all the way back, to one. Uh, now, unfortunately, I can't make that last coin disappear. I can do something reasonably similar, though. If I squeeze it for just a moment, it seems invisible. Uh, but a second squeeze brings it straight back. You preferred more coins. Uh, in that case, there's a second one back to join the first. Uh, and I think a third coin to complete the set. Now, before we move on... Thank you. Uh, before we move on, I thought I might show you just two more very quick things. Uh, the first thing is the simplest thing I know how to do using a coin, uh, and then to finish uh, something a little surprising. Now, if you think about it, even when I've made this as simple as possible, perhaps just using one coin, uh, I've still been using two hands. And to make it as simple as it could possibly be, I would need to use just one coin, uh, but also just one hand. Uh, so let's see if I can manage something like that. If I just give a little blow on the coin, it seems to disappear. And then with just a wave, it sort of fades back into existence. All well and good, but not the surprise I promised. Uh, so for a surprise, perhaps we can finish with this. Thank you. 
So thank you, Will. So let me introduce more formally Dr. Will Houston. Will is um, he's a member of the Inner Magic Circle. He's the editor of the Magic Circle's uh, journal, the Magic Circular. He's the winner of many prizes. He was the um, close-up magician, the Magic Circle close-up magician of the year. He's won the uh, European Magic Championships. Will is, by background, also a mechanical engineer. He holds a master's in engineering. And perhaps most surprisingly of all, he holds a doctorate in magic. So, Dr. Will Houston. So, well, I thought we could, we could start to, to look at some of these ideas that I've just been, that I've just been outlining from, from my perspective as a clinician. Um, and I thought maybe we could start by looking at this idea of how you make people feel at ease in a, in a setting that is often highly artificial. And I, I know from my own experience as a GP, I would try and create a sense in my consulting room where people would feel comfortable. We'd have soft chairs here, would be a, a desk, and I'd a, a, a arrange things so that we could have a, an informal conversation over it. And I hope they did feel at ease. But nevertheless, in one part of the room, there was a wash basin, and then there was an examination couch with a curtain around it, and there were scary bits of equipment, and it was quite clearly not somebody's sitting room. But from my experience as a patient, sometimes that sort of faded away and I would feel at ease with the person I was with, even though the surroundings were a bit peculiar. And I guess you have to do something similar in, in, in this sense of, of creating a sense of, of ease and naturalness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so perhaps a little bit less scary than going to visit the doctor. Um, but when you see a magician, you probably don't know precisely what they're going to do. Uh, maybe you've seen one of the magicians who embarrasses people by doing tricks sort of at their expense rather than good things for them. There's that little bit of uncertainty, I suppose, as to what magic is and what it's going to be. And you want to put people at ease and make sure that's not going to be uncomfortable. Uh, alongside that, of course, every single magic trick has a trick to it. Uh, so there's this sort of hidden component that you want to make sure your audience is unaware of. And trying to make things feel natural and comfortable uh, is very much a way of doing that. I and so I suppose it's something about you need to feel reasonably comfortable yourself in order to create that sense of comfort for other people. Do you think that applies to magic? I think it <clears throat> does. Um, but perhaps you don't have to feel comfortable as much as have people believe that you're comfortable. Mm. Uh, so, for example, there may be uh, a point at which you're, you're hiding something in your hand, hypothetically speaking, uh, of course, um, but there may be a point in which you're hiding something in your hand. That's not a particularly natural or comfortable thing to do, um, but as long as you can act as though that's natural and comfortable, it doesn't draw attention to itself, it doesn't seem untoward, and as long as it doesn't seem untoward for somebody watching, the problem sort of fades away. Oh, so you mean unless there's something that sticks out as being obviously not fitting, people yeah. don't notice that? Yes. yes, so there was a great magician uh, of the last century, a man called Di Vernon, who did a huge amount for close-up magic, and one of his kind of most quoted maxims is be natural. And he sort of said that everything you do as a magician should be natural. And I think a problem with it is that it's quite hard to decide precisely what being natural means. Uh, does it mean doing things the same way you would normally? Maybe it does, uh, but if it does, you'd hold a coin like you were paying for a, a Twix in the newsagents, uh, and people wouldn't be able to see it clearly, they wouldn't know where it was, it would all be a little bit murky. Uh, instead, you want to do things in a sort of hypernatural version, uh, where everything is very clear, very visible, and very simple to follow. So I think it's not so much about trying to be natural, at least for me, uh, it's more about trying to avoid being unnatural. Because, I mean, in a sense, we're doing that now, aren't we? Because we're having this conversation um, just between the two of us. Yeah. 
Um, I don't think anyone else is. But, but, but it isn't quite just between the two of us. Uh, and yet, if we were normally having a conversation, we'd be probably would be sitting more like that, and we'd be looking only at ourselves. But here, we're we're trying to to sort of create the sense of a natural conversation, but taking into account the fact that it's a different setting. And I just wondered if there was a parallel, um, you know, between theatrical techniques, perhaps, and well, certainly I think in the medical sense of of that that allowing people to blur out things that are around the edge and just concentrate on, on the main thing that's happening, which is a conversation with, with the professional. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Very much so. Very much so. And that same thing happens where you go, you know, you point more outwards rather than towards each other. Yeah. All of those things that perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not used to turning quite so far when I'm talking to you around this yeah. way, um, but which hopefully look a little bit less uncomfortable than it would do for everyone watching uh, than if we were like this for the whole thing, yeah. and sort of ignoring the world. Sorry, world. Uh, and and then, there's this, then there's this question about improvisation that I mentioned when I, was, when I was talking just now. That idea of improvisation being something that you... Um, that you need to be able to... In fact, that you're probably doing it a lot of the time because you're responding to things that you can't predict. Certainly so in a, in a medical consultation, somebody would come with something and you wouldn't know what it was or how they would be presenting their problem. And a lot of it would be about listening carefully, watching carefully, and then making decisions in the moment to contribute to something that was taking shape between the two of us. Um, and I think that that... that to me, took a bit of getting used to the idea that the consultation was a was an organic thing, rather than simply a way of gathering information, as I'd been taught at medical school. Hmm. And I wondered if this idea of, um, of of the stuff that you can't predict in advance made made sense to you, because because you must, I guess, you must plan how you're going to perform, but it maybe doesn't always work out like that. It, it doesn't a lot <laughs> of the time, um, which I shouldn't confess on video. Uh, but yeah, so absolutely, you have a. A trick, you know pretty much what you're going to say, uh, you know roughly what secret techniques you might try and use to make that thing happen, you know how you want it to seem for your audience, uh, but you never know quite what is going to happen when you actually do it. Uh, so for example, I was doing a show last week on Friday, and I had a trick where someone's mind was going to be read, and as part of that they needed to choose a card and read something that was written on it, and after having the person choose a card and look at it, uh, it became terribly apparent to me and to the rest of the room uh, that she very much needed her glasses and she very much did not have her glasses with her um, and that, that perhaps wouldn't be in my dream version of the trick but after it's become apparent that she can't read what's on the card and that's quite important as far as the trick's concerned it would be awful just to carry on with my script pretend that she's seen it and keep going so you have to sort of park the script for a moment, I suppose, and go through the slightly laborious but hopefully mildly humorous bit where she borrows her friend's glasses and realises that makes it far worse and then can't find her handbag. She doesn't have her glasses on, so she can't see where it is on the floor. Somebody helps her, finds them, gets the glasses on, and then you can carry back on. Uh, and it's very much that idea, I think, of improvising, not as being, let's just sort of see what happens and make it up as we go along, but rather that you have a script you know what the ideal version is, you know what all the key things that have to happen are, but if something happens outside that world, you can deviate from your script, acknowledge the thing that's happened and work with it, and then move back into your script knowing that you haven't missed anything crucial along the way. So this is, this is the, the yes and response rather than the yes but. It's, it's not allowing things to be stopped in their tracks, but it's building on what's happened Yes. And, and, and sort of finding ways around it. Yes, I don't have my glasses. No, but read the word anyway. <laughs> um, rather yes, exactly, yeah. 
So, so there's something about there's something about in in medicine anyway. I think um, needing to be aware that what people first come with may not be what bothers them most. And I used to find this a lot in general practice. In 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 the world of surgery, particularly trauma surgery, that didn't happen so much because when people came with a broken something or other or or an injury, that was usually the the primary concern. But as a GP, people would often come. Either, either not knowing quite what the problem was or with a, a smaller problem that concealed a bigger one or whatever. And so, so I was aware of very often having to change direction during the consultation because I would become aware of things that weren't obvious from the beginning. Hmm. And, um, and so that needed not just going along a scripted path but being able to change direction. And I, I think that's what you're saying a bit. With you, you do need a structure. It's not just a sort of start off and see what happens, but it's a structure that you need to be able to depart from if you should. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you need to in just very small ways. Uh, sometimes you realise somebody's not quite looking and maybe if you look at them a little bit, that'll help engage them. Sometimes it's small things like that. Sometimes it's a big thing where a card isn't where you really rather hope it would have been and you have to try and work out how to get it back where it ought to be before you're able to carry on with the trick. Uh, and sometimes it's just about what somebody else knows or understands because every magic trick essentially uh, is sort of taking people's assumptions about the way the world works uh, and then trying to utilise them to create a surprising effect. And if somebody hasn't made the assumptions you expected them to, uh, you're sort of stuck because they're not in the place you expected them to be ready to be surprised when something different And case. so I suppose you, you, you need to be able to pick that up. I mean, I was thinking, thinking back to what I was saying about Roger Neighbour's stages, which start off with, with connecting, with establishing a rapport and, and making sure that you're sort of on, on a wavelength with your, your patient. And I know that one of the other magicians I speaking to said that to, to him it's very important he, he he says once he knows somebody's name and he's looked them in the eye and shaken them by the hand he can make them do anything more or less um, sounds far more sinister it than does it sound is. sinister i don't think he meant it in a sinister way at all but but this this question of of capturing and shaping and molding and directing attention I think it's, it's something that I, I hadn't really thought... I think I'd been doing it, but I hadn't realised I'd been doing it until I spoke to you and your colleagues and, and found how very, how very sort of... How, how, how very aware you are of the need to capture attention and, and, and manipulate it, in, 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 you know, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. So can you say a little bit about how you do that? Because it's, it's, very, it's very precise, isn't it, the way you do that? It is quite, I think, yeah. Um, so... Obviously, a magic trick has a, a secret method. Um, obviously, you don't want people to see the secret method, and so you want to sort of try and make sure people are looking in the right place at the right time uh, or the wrong place at the right time, depending how you look at it. And a good example of a tool that perhaps you might use for that uh, is your eyes. Um, they're very useful tools. Uh, they're kind of hardwired social things, I suppose. And there's a, a very basic rule which goes back to a magician called John Ramsey in the world of magic which is that if you want somebody to look at a thing, then you should look at that thing. And if you want somebody to look at you, uh, then you should look at them. And it could be them in a one-on-one, -on -one, very specific, look somebody in the eye way, or it could be them as in them, the audience, just looking up in this kind of direction. Uh, and it, it works astonishingly well. Uh, as soon as you look at something, uh, people tend to look at that thing. And then as soon as you look up, it doesn't matter if you don't change much else, people start looking up towards your face and towards your eyes. 
Uh, and that's a, a tool, I suppose, which you can use to very much shape someone's experience. If you're doing something fairly, uh, perhaps you're showing a coin, uh, you can look at it and you make sure everyone else has seen it so they know what they're looking at. Uh, when you're putting it in your other hand and you're doing something a little bit sneaky, uh, perhaps you look up at them as you move it from one side to the other. So people see it peripherally, but they don't see it in the full focus of their gaze. And then just before you make the coin disappear, uh, you can gaze back down on it and then crumble it away into nothing. Uh, and very much changing the way you look changes the way that's perceived. If you look at something all the time, people are more likely to look at it. And if you look elsewhere, then you can sort of uh, spread that attention. And it, it seemed to me that there could be a, a, a sort of corollary to that, which is that you're doing that, I think, because you want people to look at things or you want to do things, but you want to know where they're looking so that you can either do things there or do the things somewhere else. But, um, but in, in clinical practice, I think sometimes, sometimes people end up looking at what you're looking at even if you don't particularly want them to. So, I mean, the obvious example is a computer in your consulting room. So if you are talking to... If I'm talking to a patient and then I start doing something on my computer or even writing something down, then that person is likely to look at what I'm looking at, aren't they? It follows from what you said. Uh -huh. And I think... And, and, and even if they can't see the computer that I'm... Uh, the screen, say, they are probably looking at me looking at the computer... Um, and I think that can have a very powerful effect. And I think we often ignore that because we, we're simply, I simply wasn't aware of how powerful is this adage that if you want them to look at it, look at it. Mm. And that anything you are looking at in, a, in a, an environment like a consultation where a patient and a doctor are concentrating very attentively at one another, um, that's likely to take attention to a particular place. And if you don't want it to go there, it's worth knowing about that, that process. And you looking at it makes it important mm. as well. Yeah. So even if you're just looking at your computer to check the time and see that you know, you're not running yeah. too late or yes. something, there's a fair chance the person thinks, oh my goodness, he's looked at the computer, he doesn't know what it is, what's going on, help, yes. or something along those lines. And, and it will certainly shift attention to the computer rather than the space between those two people, maybe. Mm. And I remember you were telling me a bit about, I mean, when you show people things... You don't just sort of show them things, do you? There, there, there are sort of ways you can, you can shape where people look and how they look. Yeah, so you, you never want to just show somebody something. It's far too, far too unexciting. Um, but you want to try and make that connection, make sure people see the right thing. And there are all sorts of different examples of it. Uh, a good one, I suppose, might be at the end of a card trick. Let's say a card has been chosen and shuffled into the pack and is about to be revealed. Uh, you could reveal that card in a number of different ways. And depending how you do it, uh, it becomes a far better trick or a far worse trick. Uh, rather conveniently, I have some cards. What a coincidence. Uh, and perhaps I can show you a little bit of what I mean. Uh, if I have a card... Let's say you chose a ten of clubs, because otherwise this is going to be awkward. Uh, one option would be me just going, was that your card? And hopefully it was, and you say yes, and that might be mildly surprising or mildly interesting. Uh, another version, which I think would be a little bit better, would be that I take the card out of the pack, uh, I then look at it, so I know what it is, you don't know what it is, but I do. I look up at you, I say, for the first time, could you tell me what card you chose? Uh, you say, the ten of clubs, and then I look back down, and then I turn the card over. And that's a far more interesting series of things to see. Everyone knows what the card is before it gets turned over, so that's very nice and clear. Uh, there's a little bit of a pause where you go, well, he knows what the card is, but I don't know if it's worked yet. Has it worked? Maybe it's worked. Oh, yes, it's worked. And that gives that little bit of build-up. Uh, another thing might be that you lift the card up higher. Uh, if I turn the card over down here, 
It's sort of all right, but it's not that important an object. Uh, if it's higher up and closer towards you as an audience, uh, when I turn it over, it's more interesting. So if I hold it up here, look at it, and then turn it over, that becomes far better again. Uh, another thing you might do is add a little smile. So if I look at the card, I know what it is for the first time. What was your card? Uh, you say the Ten of Clubs, and after you say it, I look at the card, I look back at you and smile, and then look back down at the card in a sort of, I know it's right, and you know that I know it's right, and I know this is going to be really good when you get to see it, but you haven't seen it yet, but in a moment you're going to really like it when you see it, right? <laughs> and then I turn it over, and it's up, and it's high, and it's clear, then that makes it that little bit better again. Uh, and you can sort of do this, I think, for everything. It might be turning a card over, or holding a coin up, or the way you stand, but all of those little bits make a huge difference when they're added together. And I think what, what fascinated me when I first started talking to Will about this sort of thing was the, the level of analysis and precision and, um, and, and sort of deliberateness that goes into something that when I saw you do these things as a performance, it just seemed completely natural. It had never occurred to me that any of these things were, uh, were, were, were deliberately sort of practised or, 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 or done specifically with, it, with an aim in mind. It just seemed to happen. Um, and so it, it, it made me wonder about all the various things that I do as a clinician, you know, just handing over a prescription to somebody or, or you know, all, all sorts of things where, where there, are, there, are, there are different ways of doing things that we just kind of, in medicine, I think, just take for granted and just do them automatically without thinking. Hmm. But one of the things that really interested me about what you were saying was, was that, that you, you must have internalised, you must have sort of made automatic a lot of these things because I imagine you, you can't be thinking all the time now should I hold this card up or should I turn it around or should I smile because there's such a lot of other things going on and and so uh, I want to talk a little bit about how these these skills become sort of internalized I, I think it's a bit like learning to drive isn't it where you you know to begin with you're you're using up all your attentional capacity to remember how to press the clutch before all the various bits but after a while when you start to be comfortable with that, then you can think much more about what's going on on the road uh, and, and dealing with difficult weather conditions or maybe talking to whoever's next to you, all those things. But you need to have got through that stage of, of making those physical things automatic. Is there something mm. like that, yeah, do you think, much, in, in magic? Very much so. I think most of the time, perhaps, people see magic and they think, well, I, I know what that is. That's being really good at doing like secret, sneaky things with your hands or having special props that make things happen. Uh, when in fact that's a very, very small amount of showing somebody a magic trick. Uh, of course you need to be able to do all that stuff, but if you're thinking about it as you say, then you're spending all your time going, well, my little finger's a little bit too high, I need to move that down, let's put my hands over here, and I think that should be good, and yeah, that's it. yeah that was good. Um, and it just looks very, very clunky, very, very robotic, and uh, doesn't work well at all. And what you need to have done is to internalise all those physical things uh, so that they happen automatically. You don't have to worry about which finger's holding what or where it's pointing or where it's moving. You can kind of let your hands get on with that stuff. And whilst your hands are getting on with those things, you can be looking at the room. You can be seeing how big it is and trying to make sure you're looking at everybody in it, at least to some extent. Uh, you can be thinking about whether there's somebody who's taking a photo down near the front and you want to try and make sure you don't look bad in it so you're smiling a little bit whilst they're clicking the button or there's a person who's about to get up and walk out and why are they walking out? Does it look like they're annoyed about something or maybe they just need to go to catch their train? Uh, is that person near the back still looking at me? If not, 
Maybe I can talk and look at them a little bit more. And you're looking at all of those other things that are going on around the magic trick that you're doing and trying to make sure all of those things are optimized. And there's no way you can do that if you're just focusing on where are my hands. Yeah, because I was thinking back to when I was a medical student, I was talking about learning to take a history, you know, and you taught to, to the, the history of the presenting complaint and then, you know, how long has it been there and what, what were the diseases in the family and, and all those things. And to begin with, I was focusing so much on remembering which questions to ask that I just simply didn't take any account of the answers. Um, and I just couldn't remember afterwards what people had said, and so I'd have to ask them again. And, you know, and because because trying to trying to work out the process occupied all my attention. Um, and so, and then when I became a GP, I, I got to the stage where I, I didn't really have to think consciously about that, and I didn't have to think well. Uh, this person's got a cough. What, what, what are the seven important and uh, five less important causes of a cough or whatever? Because I'd already spent a lot of time learning that stuff and sort of internalising it like you, not having to think where to put your little finger, I think. Um, but that takes quite a time, doesn't it, to, to, become, to, get, to gather those skills and to, to, become, to make them so much second nature that you can rely on them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think is a process by which you learn mm. it. So if I'm trying to learn something difficult and manipulative, let's say, with a pack of cards, uh, I might start off by reading a description and trying to understand what's supposed to happen at each part during that process. And then you get your pack of cards out and you have a go and you sort of see how it works. It probably doesn't work particularly well to start with, uh, but you have a go nevertheless and you go, OK, well, that bit was pretty good. I think that bit was all right. That bit was awful. And you try and see which bits are good, which bits are bad, what the bad bits are, why is it bad, what can I change that will improve it, and then you do it again trying to change that bit. So each time you do it, you're sort of iterating and trying to get better and better each time, always finding the worst bit and then improving it. Uh, after you've done that for a little while, uh, hopefully you have something where everything works pretty much as you want it to. But it only works pretty much as you want it to when you're giving it all of your attention, all of your focus. Uh, so at that point, perhaps you want to start doing the thing with cards uh, at the same time as you're answering your emails uh, or you're typing something, you're editing a text, you're eating your dinner, all of those other things that require a little bit of your mind but not too much of it. And if you spend time doing the card thing at the same time as the other bit, you're sort of practising that idea of being able to do it in the background whilst giving your attention to something else. Uh, and after a while, you do that more and more and more. Uh, eventually, fingers crossed, you get to a wonderful stage where you realise your hand's just done it, but you weren't really paying attention, you're not quite sure. Uh, and at that point, you know it's sort of internal. You don't have to think step, 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 step. You can just sort of think go, and then you know that your hands will look after the rest whilst you concentrate on something else. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, as a, uh, because, as I said, in my first career phase, I was a surgeon, and I, I remember distinctly having to learn how to tie... Uh, knots in, in, in suture material with one hand and it was really difficult to, to, to do. It took me ages tying knots on bits of string around the backs of chairs and things for ages and ages. But when I'd been practising that for quite a long time and the same went for all sorts of other techniques, I stopped thinking, now I need to tie a knot with my left hand or whatever. I just thought I need to stop that bleeding. So I'd put a clip on it and then it would just happen automatically. And so there was a lot of stuff about, about developing these manipulative skills in operative surgery that required a lot of precision and dexterity of the kind that I think you've been talking about. But in, in magic, we often don't see those skills. But, well, I know that you also, as well as, as well as the skills that we don't see, there are skills that I have seen you do, the skills of manipulating mm. cards. So 
can, can you say a bit about those? Because I think that's a very interesting sort of aspect of magic that we often don't notice. Sure. Uh, so, again, rather conveniently, back of cards. Um, and I suppose the kinds of things that we're talking about are sort of flourishes, yeah. at really. So there are things that magicians would do which are tricks, where one card changes into another or something along those lines. Uh, there are other things which are flourishes, which don't serve any purpose in a trick, but which maybe look nice. Uh, and a basic sort of an example, which I'm sure everyone has come across in some sense, might be fanning the cards out nicely, uh, or something like this. Uh, there are then more complex versions where you're cutting cards in one hand, uh, or cutting cards differently in another hand, perhaps, uh, or flicking them from one place to the other. And these are all fancy things which don't really achieve anything per se. Uh, it's no more effective or less effective than just cutting them, but they are things which look nice. And they're a really good thing to do uh, as a magician because you start to learn how cards work. I never need to do that in a trick, but I understand that my fingers behave in this way and the pressure works in this way, and if I do this to a card, it'll probably want to do that in return. Uh, and you start to understand more about how they move. And as you understand more and more about what, how they move, you become better and better at doing the things which perhaps you're not going to show somebody. So there are all of these bits which you can see. Um, and then there are similar things which perhaps you don't get to see so much, uh, which make tricks happen. And I know when you were talking about flourishes, you, you do things that are sort of visually very beautiful, even though they're not, they're not deceptive. Hmm. You know, sort of splitting things and making them fan out and things. Yeah. Sort of a high bar has been set now. One example which shows a few different things that one might try and do uh, is this. So to begin with, you want to cut the cards in half. Uh, so you're aiming to cut 26 and 26 cards in each pile so they're the same size as one another. Uh, once you cut them in half, uh, just using a sort of fairly gentle pressure, uh, you give them a shuffle, uh, but not a conventional shuffle. In this shuffle, the cards alternate from each side. So in pushing them together, the cards now alternate one here, one here, one here, one here, one here, one here, and so on and so forth all the way through the deck. Uh, once you've done that, you can push them together most of the way, and then if you grip with just a very gentle amount of pressure, uh, you can get a rather surprising thing uh, where the cards just sort of seem to fan out uh, almost of their own accord whoops, into a little fan uh, kind of a thing. That was the perfect time to drop a card, wasn't it? Talking about delicacy uh, and fine <laughs> pressure. But nevertheless, hopefully the point stands, uh, at least to some extent. <laughs> so so this, is, this, is, this is one aspect of, 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 of magic that's more, in a sense, it's almost more like juggling, isn't it? It's, 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 seeing, it's seeing and marvelling at a, a skill that clearly takes a, a very long time to, um, to master. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And presumably there's no shortcut, you just have to spend a lot of time practising doing that. Yeah, a little while fiddling with cards. <laughs> um, and then magic, I suppose, is using that skill, but in the furtherance of some other goal. Yeah. Um, so, so another thing that, that struck me from our earlier conversations was, a, was this idea of, of, what you, of what is going on in a performance, whether it's a magical performance or a medical performance, and what people remember. Um, because I think I mean, there's a lot of evidence in the medical literature that people remember very often remember very little about what was actually said uh, in a clinical consultation, especially if they're anxious um, and they have, may have a vague idea, uh, but it may be inaccurate or, or it may be incomplete or, or whatever. But, but on the other hand, people do have an idea of whether the consultation was in some way a successful one or not 
or, or whether somehow it met their, their needs or their expectations. Um, and so there's something about the, the difference maybe between what actually happens and what people remember as having happened. Mm, absolutely. And I suppose one part is that thing of people remembering stuff about how you make them feel uh, rather than necessarily what you do. And there's a, a really good example, I think, in the world of magic, in that quite often when I chat with people, they say, oh, I saw a magician a year ago or last month or something like this. And you say, well, what were they like? And they say, oh, they were amazing, absolutely loved. They did the amazing, amazing things. Everyone had a great time. And then you say, oh, what were they called? Because I want to know, I'm curious as to who's working and who's doing what sort of thing. And what, was this, what was their name? Yeah, no idea. No idea. It was amazing, though. <laughs> Uh, and you get that thing where the feeling of surprise and happiness and amazement is much more sticky, as it were, than the name. Uh, the other part of it, I think, is that a magic trick almost happens twice. Uh, it happens once when you do the thing and a room full of people see it or a single person sees it, but then it happens again in a slightly different way when that person either remembers it and sort of tells the story back to themselves or when they tell other people about it in the future. And as a magician, you can make choices, I think, about whether you prioritise the experience of somebody seeing the trick now uh, or you prioritise the experience of somebody hearing somebody talk about the trick in the future. And you can try and make that spoken version in the future better uh, or you can try and make the present one better or you can use the present one as a tool to just sort of move things around a little bit elsewhere. So there's something then perhaps about, about sort of constructing a narrative or, or some sort of flow to whatever happens in that 10 minutes or that 20 minutes of performance um, that, that isn't so much about, about hiding some things and putting them out of view, but about, about placing attention on, on the things that, that, you, that you want people to attend to at the time, but also you want them to remember afterwards. It's, it's not just a question of, of, of facility and individual bits, it's putting the whole thing together. Mm, Does that make sense, do you think? And you can very quickly change a magic trick, at least just by having somebody put the bits together in the wrong order. Uh, so, for example, you might do a trick uh, where you get somebody to shuffle a pack of cards and you take it back, and then you take out a prediction card from somewhere in the deck. And then some stuff happens, and at the end your prediction is seen to be right. That's fine, that's how the trick works. Uh, but you can make it a better trick if, just before you show the person that the prediction has worked, uh, you do a little recap. And you might say, at the beginning of the trick, I made a prediction. Uh, you shuffled the cards as much as you wanted, and after you shuffled, I dealt through the pack, and then such and such happened, and look, my prediction's right. And you haven't done much at all. You've only said things which are true, but you said that I made a prediction as the first thing, and the person says, yes, yes, you did. And then you say, and you shuffled the cards as much as you wanted to, and they say, yes, yes, I did. Uh, but now you've set the idea that you made a prediction, then they shuffled the pack. And perhaps the trick is impossible under those circumstances. And what really happened uh, was that they shuffled the pack as much as they wanted, but then you took them and you made a prediction after the deck was shuffled. So you could say something about what the order was and use that to make a trick work. Uh, and just in that little recap, you can have someone going, oh yeah, I know what happened. Uh, he made a prediction, I shuffled the pack, then this thing happened. And as soon as they've got that little detail the wrong way around, there's no way they can get anywhere. There's no way of figuring out the trick if that was the case. And if you just sort of tweak that memory a little bit, 
um, you can make it insolvable. And, and I think, I think from, from a clinician's point of view, knowing that people will very often not remember the details of what was said is really important because because you may be very concerned with the details of exactly what you said and you may have given information of this kind or that kind. But actually, if you if you want the message to be that maybe you're, you're not really quite sure exactly what's wrong, but you're pretty sure it's not serious. Or it's something that we do need to take seriously and so if such and such hasn't happened in a week's time, I want to hear from you again, sort of thing. That, that sort of final message that you want somebody to go away with is really important. And I think I was uh, aware of needing to, be, needing to be clear at the end of a consultation that my patient or patients had a, had a clear sense of what needed to happen next. Um, and so with one part, of, with one of my heads, if you like, I was thinking about how that would happen. With another one, I was thinking perhaps, you know, could it be this, could it be that? Have I, have I covered all the bases? Another one perhaps would be thinking, oh, um, you know, am I running late? How many patients are waiting, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there's, there's something, going back to what we were saying about, about, um, about apparent naturalness um, and, and making things seem at ease, even though you've got many other things going on in your mind at the same time. It's something that all has to come together in a way yeah. to, to create something that at the end works for the person who's been the audience or the patient, but also works for the performer. And I, I mean, from a medical point of view, that's how I saw it. But does that make sense as a, as a magician? Yeah, I think, think it does. I think that performed naturalness mm. is very much at mm. the crux of this. Mm. If you're trying to mess around with someone's memory of something, but you say it in a very careful, considered way. You know, let me tell you what happened first. Remember, this was first. This thing happened first. It starts to feel very considered and careful. And you, oh, hang on a minute, what's going on here? If you just say it in a more casual way, that works wonderfully. Mm. Uh, similar thing with the dexterity stuff. If you're doing it nice and smoothly and it's sort of quiet and natural, great. Uh, if it looks like it's effort and is out there, that's no good. Same thing with the looking. If you're looking at somebody and you're very like, I'm now looking at you, uh, it suddenly feels very uncomfortable and very, very weird and doesn't work at all. So all of those things have to be kind of hidden under this veneer of naturalness, I suppose, mm. uh, whilst underneath you're frantically trying to figure out what to do. So in a, in a minute or two, we're going to open things up to, to questions from, from you. But I, I just wanted to finish by saying that, that to me, this has been a, it's been a very interesting um, it's been a very interesting experience spending time with magicians because at first I couldn't really see what the connections might be between our two worlds. And, and indeed, if you look at, at why we're each doing what we're doing, they're clearly very different. I mean, doing magic tricks and, and trying to help people with illness are, are, are obviously different. But actually, looking at the, at the sort of areas of intersection point out to me all kinds of... Um, all kinds of area where, areas where I think we can learn from one another, well, certainly where I think medical people can learn from, um, from magicians, particularly this, this very thoughtful analysis and practising and perfecting of the techniques of managing interaction with other people, especially small audiences. And so when it occurred to me that I might think of the clinical consultation as a close-up live performance with a very small audience... Um, often an audience of one, sometimes two or three, but with a very small audience, then it seemed to me that those techniques of working with a small audience were something that I hadn't really been formally taught, but where we have an enormous amount to learn, I think, from experts in completely different fields. <laughs>